You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 202 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. Last week we started our discussion of the Emancipation Proclamation, and in setting the stage for that event, we saw that from the very beginning of the Civil War, there was no shortage of Northern voices to remind Abraham Lincoln that an assault on slavery was both a logical means of waging war against the Confederacy and a highly desirable end in itself. The part played by black slaves inside the Confederacy provided ample evidence to back up those assertions. Slaves made up almost 40% of the South's population, and their labor was an essential part of the Confederate war effort. The U.S. Census of 1860 had counted almost 4 million slaves, over 2.3 million in the states of the Deep South alone. Over half the population of South Carolina and Mississippi consisted of slaves, and over two-fifths in Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. The slaves' contribution to the Confederate war effort was crucial, and so it's no surprise that many in the North, during the early stages of the Civil War, condemned the Lincoln administration for fighting with one hand tied behind its back as long as it made no move to touch the South's peculiar institution. But as we indicated in the last show, early in the war, the matter was not nearly so simple. Emancipation of the slaves was not just a means of weakening the Confederacy or even an act of long overdue justice to an oppressed and exploited race. It was also a highly sensitive political and social issue within those loyal states which still supported the Union, and so it had the potential to divide the North as much as it disturbed the South. Whether demanding immediate emancipation or moving more cautiously towards it, most Republicans realized they had to reckon with the ingrained prejudice and outright racism of most Northern whites. Whoever took up the cause of emancipation, at whatever juncture, and for whatever reason, would have to work to relieve the fears, resolve the doubts, and reduce the hostility of their fellow northern whites towards blacks. As we said in the last show, in the early stages of the Civil War, from 1861 and into 1862, much of that work was done by the course of the conflict itself, as the war became more difficult, costly, and drawn out than expected, and more and more Northerners came to realize that Union military success likely required that the federal government lay its hands upon slavery. Right. 
So really, what we wanted to stress is that arguments against emancipation were at their strongest early in the war, but were almost inevitably weakened by developments during the, say, first year and a half of the conflict. As it became clear during 1862 that Union military success remained elusive, and as it became clear the war was becoming a struggle to the death between the North and South, the pressure for emancipation intensified correspondingly. And as federal armies penetrated into Confederate territory, as slaves deserted their masters and came through Union lines, and as commanders in the field took matters into their own hands, they converted the issue from a matter for general debate into a matter of immediate human and practical concern. And that's a good point for us to return to the spot where we left off at the end of the last show, at Fort Monroe, at the tip of the peninsula. When we left off last time, we said that a Union general from Massachusetts, Benjamin Butler, was in command at Fort Monroe at the tip of the peninsula in eastern Virginia when three slaves who had escaped from their owner arrived there in May of 1861. Far from being an abolitionist before the war, Butler had built his political career in Massachusetts as a pro-South Democrat. In 1860, in fact, he had urged his party to nominate Jefferson Davis as its candidate for the U.S. presidency. But Butler firmly condemned secession, and Massachusetts troops that he led had been among the first to reach Washington after Abraham Lincoln's call to arms in April 1861. Butler's transformation into a militant enemy of secession didn't automatically make him a friend of the slave. While commanding Union troops in Maryland during the first weeks of the war, he had made a point of promising not only to respect slave property, but also of ordering his men to forcibly put down any slave revolt that might break out. But then in May, when a Confederate officer approached Fort Monroe under a flag of truce and demanded that Butler return the three fugitives to their owner, the general refused. He refused not because of any newfound anti-slavery principles, but because he recognized the pointlessness of fighting an enemy while helping that enemy to retrieve valuable war-making materials. More specifically, Butler realized the absurdity of returning slave laborers to masters who had taken up arms against the U.S. government especially when those slaves had just been working on enemy fortifications and would be set back to such work upon their return. As for the legal issues involved, Butler judged that a nation at war could seize the property of its enemies, especially property used by those enemies in military-related activities, like building fortifications. Butler, a lawyer by profession, knew there was a precedent for seizing such contraband of war, and he used that term to refer to the fugitive slaves. Human property, he asserted, was just as much subject to seizure as any other kind of property. Butler was not, therefore, declaring the three fugitives to be legally free. He simply transferred them from control of their former owner to the control of the federal government. More specifically, he put them to work at Fort Monroe under the direction of his own quartermaster. When the indignant representative of the slave owner, 
who was a Confederate officer, by the way, reminded Butler of the Fugitive Slave Act and its requirements, the general smoothly responded that the Fugitive Slave Act didn't apply since Virginia had seceded from the Union and now claimed to be a foreign country. General-in-Chief Winfield Scott, Secretary of War Simon Cameron, and President Lincoln all endorsed Butler's action. Cameron directed Butler, quote, to refrain from surrendering to alleged masters any person who may come within your lines. But it's worth pointing out again that Butler's contraband policy did not actually free any slaves. And in fact, Cameron emphasized the provisional work-in-progress nature of this policy by adding that the final disposition of those persons, quote, will be reserved for future determination, end quote. Nevertheless, as we trace the evolution of the federal government's ideas and policies about slavery and emancipation during the Civil War, Butler's decision to treat the fugitive slaves as contraband of war, his refusal to return them to their owners, and the Lincoln administration's endorsement of this policy can be seen as a first step on the road that would eventually lead to emancipation. News of what Butler was doing and the Lincoln administration's approval spread through the country. The public response in the North was overwhelmingly positive, and although some Union commanders continued to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act by returning runaway slaves to their owners, other officers quickly moved to follow Butler's lead. They, too, saw the value in utilizing the labor of the runaway slaves, thereby benefiting the Union forces while weakening the Confederate armies. At the urging of Congressman Owen Lovejoy, the House of Representatives also put its stamp of approval on providing refuge to escaped slaves. The House agreed on July 9, 1861, that it was, quote, no part of the duty of the soldiers of the United States to capture and return fugitive slaves, end quote. Congress put sharper teeth into that resolution early the next year when it passed a new article of war which formally prohibited Union soldiers from returning fugitive slaves who had entered their lines. In August of 1861, Congress took another, bigger step toward interfering with slavery by passing the first Confiscation Act. The new law provided that any master using slaves or permitting slaves to be used in the aid of the Confederate war effort Quote, shall forfeit all right to those slaves. But it didn't formally emancipate any of the slaves that it affected. Like Benjamin Butler's action, the first Confiscation Act simply placed them in the hands of the Union Army. But a widening divide was opening between such legal niceties and the practical reality of the situation, a divide that was obvious to Butler. At Fort Moreau, he had originally taken in and granted sanctuary to male fugitives and employed them in the service of the Union Army. But by the end of July, the refugees' numbers had far outgrown his need for additional labor, and they now included large numbers of women and children. Butler wondered exactly what was the status of these people. If they were still property, then it seemed to him they were now the property of the federal government. But did the free states and the U.S. government wish to own that type of property? If not, weren't they in fact free? Butler confessed himself led to this conclusion, led to look upon and treat these men, women, and children in practice as free, 
and as he said, quote, never to be reclaimed by their former owners. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, two union generals took it upon themselves to dictate federal policy regarding emancipation. In late July of 1861, John C. Fremont, the famous explorer, and in 1856, the Republican Party's first presidential candidate, took command of the Union Army's Department of the West, with his headquarters in St. Louis, Missouri. In response to the frustrating and bitter nature of the Civil War in that border state, Fremont proclaimed martial law throughout Missouri at the end of August, and he ordered the execution of all captured enemy guerrillas and the emancipation of all slaves of Confederate sympathizers. Seven months later, in March of 1862, David Hunter assumed command of the Department of the South, which included all of South Carolina, Georgia, and Northern Florida, but was in reality limited to those few areas actually under the Union Army's control along the South Atlantic coast. Unusually for a West Point graduate and professional soldier, Hunter was a genuine, dyed-in-the-wool abolitionist, and in early May 1862, he declared all slaves throughout his department to be free. Black and white abolitionists throughout the North applauded the actions of Fremont and Hunter as genuine gains for human freedom and brilliant strokes of military strategy. But Abraham Lincoln was less than pleased with what the two generals had done. It was one thing for a commander like Benjamin Butler to seize rebels' property on a pragmatic case-by-case basis. It was another thing for a general to issue a sweeping manifesto of emancipation within his department. That amounted to a major change in policy, and in taking such action themselves, Fremont and Hunter had overstepped their authority. If the power to take such a step belonged to anyone, Lincoln told Hunter, it belonged to the president, not to a general in the field. Just as important as Lincoln's procedural objection was his strategic one. He feared the reaction in the border states. Kentucky politicians, including some of Lincoln's personal friends, warned him that Fremont's action in Missouri would destroy unionism in the bluegrass state. The president therefore concluded that any sweeping declaration of emancipation would, quote, alarm our Southern Union friends and turn them against us, perhaps ruin our rather fair prospect for Kentucky, end quote. 
and so in the end, Lincoln countermanded the orders of both Fremont and Hunter. While not going so far, some politically conservative Union officers still strove energetically to protect the South's peculiar institution. Henry Halleck, when he replaced Fremont as department commander in St. Louis, issued instructions that in the future no fugitive slaves would be, quote, permitted to enter the lines of any camp or of any force on the march, and that any now within such lines would be immediately excluded therefrom, end quote. Halleck repeated that order three months later, and he directed his subordinates to follow it not only in the loyal border states of Missouri and Kentucky, but also as Union armies moved into Confederate territory in Tennessee. General John A. Dix followed suit in Virginia. This conduct, of course, confused and upset many slaves. In Maryland, reporter George E. Stevens discovered in November 1861 that with so many fugitives having been returned to their masters by Union troops, the slaves, quote, look upon Union men as little better than secessionists, end quote. And when neither the White House nor the War Department countermanded these exclusionary orders, the actual nature of federal policy towards slaves of Confederate masters became hopelessly ambiguous. In the Civil War's first phase, Abraham Lincoln often seemed more invested than Congress in a war policy that was both militarily and socially conservative. But as Frederick Douglass and others argued, it was far easier to talk about winning the war while sparing slavery than to actually do that. Lincoln had begun to implicitly acknowledge as much in 1861 when he accepted Butler's contraband decision and then signed the first Confiscation Act. And although the president refused to allow Fremont and Hunter to proclaim broad-based emancipation throughout their departments, Lincoln was well aware that the more limited policies he had already approved, particularly the Confiscation Act, were inevitably taking their toll on the institution of slavery. He recognized that, as he would later put it, the war to restore the Union was already grinding slavery down, quote, by mere friction and abrasion. But if so, if congressional action and Union military policy and practice was even then starting to attack slavery, then how could Lincoln hope to retain the loyalty of the slaveholding border states, which was one of his major concerns in the early stages of the war? It seems possible that a policy initiative that Lincoln pursued from the end of 1861 onward represented an attempt to resolve that problem practically. Between November 1861 and July of 1862, the president repeatedly urged border state politicians to enact programs of gradual, compensated emancipation within their own borders, and he urged Congress to appropriate sufficient funds to finance those programs. Lincoln urged this course upon the border states in the name of military necessity. It would, he said, considerably shorten the war. Lincoln appealed to the border state legislators, saying that if they made it clear to the Confederacy that their states would never join the rebellion, then the Confederates would understand that, quote, they cannot much longer maintain the contest, end quote. 
But to prove to the Confederates that they would never pull the border states into the rebellion, those states would have to give up their slaves. Lincoln insisted that, quote, you cannot divest them of their hope to ultimately have you, so long as you show a determination to perpetuate the institution within your own states. In other words, Lincoln was arguing that Confederate hopes for victory relied to a large degree on the expectation of eventually attracting the slaveholding border states to join the rebellion. Deprive the Confederacy of that hope, Lincoln insisted, and they would have no choice but to give up the fight. Lincoln made no attempt to substantiate this claim, and most border state politicians found it unconvincing. It's perplexed many historians, too. The Confederates were certainly disappointed when Maryland and Kentucky failed to rise up when Confederate armies struck north in 1862, but there was no evidence or any serious suggestion that this disappointment was remotely strong enough to get the seceded states to throw in the towel. Throughout the first half of 1862, Lincoln constantly but fruitlessly pressed his plans for gradual compensated emancipation. In March 1862, the president sent a message to Congress with a draft resolution outlining his plan for gradual compensated emancipation accompanied by voluntary colonization. Its gradualism, provision for compensation, and proposal for colonization were intended to sweeten the pill for slave owners, reassure northern white opinion generally, and smooth the transition from slavery to freedom. The resolution easily passed both houses of Congress, but the border states would have nothing to do with it, despite Lincoln's efforts to persuade them. First, the president had hoped to persuade Delaware, with fewer than 1,800 slaves, to give the lead. But such was the opposition there that supporters of the Lincoln Plan didn't even dare to bring it to a vote in the state legislature. The border state politicians were skeptical about the financial provisions of the plan, fearful that even this measure would be an infringement on the rights of the states, and basically unprepared yet to face the consequences of emancipation, even gradual emancipation. As Congress was about to adjourn in July, Lincoln called the border state members to a final meeting. He repeated old arguments about how his plan would have cut short the war, but there was also a more ominous note in what he said now. Quote, If the war continues long, the institution in your states will be extinguished by mere friction and abrasion, by the mere incidents of war. It will be gone, and you will have nothing valuable in lieu of it. Much of its value is gone already. He spoke also of the mounting pressure upon him for more sweeping measures, and to reinforce his point, he spoke of Hunter's proclamation in May and its popular reception. He said, quote, I do not speak of emancipation at once, but of a decision at once to emancipate gradually. But even the implications of this request were too much for them, and a majority of the border state congressmen turned it down. Congress soon adjourned, and the president switched to more drastic measures. So that seems like a good point to leave things for now. We'll talk about the Second Confiscation Act, which Congress passed in July of 1862 before it adjourned, and we'll talk about Abraham Lincoln's decision to issue his proclamation. But all of that will have to wait until the next episode. 
That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery by Eric Foner. We've actually recommended The Fiery Trial before, way back in episode number 50. But since we think it's an absolutely indispensable resource, as far as understanding Abraham Lincoln and this crucial subject, well, we don't have any qualms about recommending this particular book again. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations, even the ones we've given twice, if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And some of you headed over there this past week and signed up to join the Strawfoot Brigade. Like Heidi and Greg and Thomas. Thanks for that. And thanks to John G. for his donation. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Emancipation Proclamation. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.